is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is the Full Story Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Lately, it seems like Australia has got a problem with building big things, like roads, tunnels and stadiums. In Melbourne, there are calls for Australia's biggest and most expensive infrastructure project, the Suburban Rail Loop, to be scrapped. In Brisbane, a multi-billion dollar revamp of the Gabba Stadium, key to the Queensland Government's plan for the 2032 Olympics, has lost support from residents and even the Lord Mayor. And in Sydney, one road junction has become a source of anger and frustration for many. I literally was just at one traffic lights for almost 30 minutes. Like, it's crazy because of this Roselle interchange and the changes. Including actor Rebel Wilson. I've had to get a helicopter to work because of the traffic at the Roselle interchange. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Newsroom Mike Tisher and National News Editor Patrick Keneally about how and why building big can go bad. It's Friday, the 8th of December. 
begins immediately after the morning peak in just hours. In Victoria, meanwhile, there's an ombudsman's report about the suburban rail loop project, which heavily criticised the way it was planned. There are growing calls for the Victorian government to hit the pause button or even scrap what's been described as the biggest and most expensive infrastructure project in Australia's history. It is also a hugely expensive project that has come in for quite a lot of criticism for whether it's cost-effective, but mostly about the way it was announced uh, without a lot of very key people knowing about it very much in advance. And then in Brisbane... The Gabba, as we know it, will soon be gone, with the state government confirming it will redevelop the stadium to host the Olympic Games. Plans include three pedestrian bridges... We had the controversy about the preparations for the 2032 Olympic Games. The project is the signature piece of a $7 billion deal between the state and federal governments signed today. The agreement, ending months of doubt over who was paying for key projects. The Lord Mayor, Adrian Schrinner, uh, resigned from the team planning that project, having previously supported it. There's a lot of internal politics going on between state and local government in Queensland about that project. Greens are very opposed to it from the start. There's a lot of back and forth going on there. But I think really key part of the controversy around these very large projects, particularly the suburban rail loop, has just been the massive blowout in the cost estimates. So on suburban rail loop, they went from something like, I think the original estimates were around $50 billion for the whole project. Now the first stage alone is estimated to cost $33 billion. The entire project is around $200 billion. It's just, it's almost unimaginable, <laughs> the amount of money that's been tipped into this. Look, it is over sort of a period of 50 years, but it is like a generation's or more's worth of infrastructure funding in Victoria. It's a very big decision. And, you know, the ombudsman has rightly criticised the lack of process involved in coming up with such a huge project. Similarly, on WestConnex, you know, that went from, I think, original of around $10 billion to, you know, 15 or $16 billion. And we see it even with the Brisbane Olympics as well, which original estimate was around $1 billion. Now that's heading, you know, north of, you know, two and a half, three, $3 billion. And we've seen it across so many projects as well. I think, you know, it's become the norm that in these massive projects that they're both massively over budget and take much longer than originally scheduled. Right. Do any infrastructure projects ever come in on time and under budget? Is this just something we should expect? I've heard it referred to by an Oxford Uni professor as the iron law of infrastructure, that they all run over budget. Mm. And, and look, this is not a lone experience in Australia. In the UK, you saw it with things like HS2, which is blown out by more than double. You know, California's high-speed rail is going nowhere because, again, costs have just blown out massively. Although it does seem particularly to afflict the US, the UK and us are particularly affected. Whereas in Japan, often you see things like high-speed rail, it is much easier to roll out another line compared with in Australia where we often start from from nothing. Right. Anyone who's travelled around the world who's used, for example, Japan's transport infrastructure would see that Australian roads and transport just don't really live up to that. They don't hold the candle to it. Where no, I was there earlier this year and, and it was just amazing. I went on a mag level. It was incredible. I came back and just, you know, wish we could have <laughs> things like that. But you know, even with their new maglev line they're planning, that that's, you know, going to cost the equivalent of what I mean, this is like 290 kilometres of, of rail that's going at 500 kilometres an hour and they're going to deliver that 
well, I think, for less than what the entire suburban rail loop will cost in the state of Victoria. <laughs> so you do have to wonder where we go so wrong in Australia on these massive infrastructure projects. Right, let's get into that. I mean, why are some countries better at doing this? Why are, do Australian infrastructure projects just go so wrong? What are the big issues here? I think to sort of boil it down to its essence, the problem is that politicians love to announce stuff. They are often constrained by their election timetable and that leads them in many cases to jump the gun, to be too optimistic on projections and even also to think about what kind of projects the state or city needs. I mean, the Sydney's West Connect project, to take one example, it's kind of perpetuating the idea that we drive to work from far-distant suburbs, low-density suburbs, That is how Australia's cities are constructed. It's understandable that people don't want to think in an entirely different way about how we configure our cities. Mm. But you do have to wonder whether the equivalent amount of money spent on improving public transport, for example, in many different ways might have been better spent, might have been quicker, might have been cheaper, might have made more of a difference quicker. And look, there's certainly been attempts to take the politics out of it, but I think some of these big projects are inherently political. Kevin Rudd set up Infrastructure Australia to develop priority lists and, like, I'm looking at the priority list in front of me, but they're not terribly exciting, to be honest. So on the infrastructure, like, the highest priority list, we've got the M12 motorway in Sydney. I don't even know where that is. Um, uh, Western Sydney Airport, yeah, maybe a little bit exciting. In Victoria, the M80 ring road upgrade, again, like, boring. But politicians want these really exciting transformational announcements, Mm. but often the ones that Infrastructure Australia recommends and The Economist recommend are things that are pretty dull, to be honest. Is part of the problem here the long timeline of a project compared to the relatively short timeline of a state government that has a big hand in delivering them? You know, you have a state government coming in every few years and, you know, their egos and their ideas might interfere with what is actually the best thing for that project. Yeah, I think it's really awkward sometimes. So, you know, in New South Wales, there's four-year terms, which is good. It gives people enough time to actually get small projects done. And if you're in for two terms, perhaps you'll actually see the fruition of something that you fund initially in the first term. But here in West Connects, we have this very awkward position where the current government is having to take responsibility for all these nightmare scenarios on the road that were actually baked in by a decision from the former coalition government mm. in, in their first term of government. There's another problem here that there are a variety of interests at play in these big projects, including private companies who might be looking to make a profit that doesn't necessarily gel with the best result for the public when it comes to travelling along a road and not paying millions of dollars of tolls. Well, you're always going to have to have private companies involved. Yeah, there aren't many companies who do that kind of work. (laughs) You're always restricted to a few. There aren't many consulting companies either that do that kind of, you know, increasingly, we've increasingly outsourced the um, public service role to the private consulting companies too. So there is that danger that it's always the same people going around in the same circles and justifying their own work, which I think was also part of the criticism of the Victorian Ombudsman's report. I think there's also a distortion in the way that we choose projects because, In New South Wales, for example, one of the attractive parts of West Connects for the previous government was that they were able to be, you know, they could flog it off after they finished it. So as soon as the motorway is finished, they can sell it to, you know, the Canadian 
pension fund or some other big group that love these kind of projects because they get guaranteed returns on them of, you know, sometimes 4% a year. And then they can use that money to invest again in other in other infrastructure. So it distorts right from the beginning the choice of infrastructure project, whereas on a rail project, that's not going to be attractive to a private investor. So Australia is behind when it comes to building quality public infrastructure, but we do need to keep building these projects. What are some big principles that we can follow to to get it right? Independent assessments before they're committed to, (laughs) I think, is the, to, you know, say it in very basic terms, like a lot of these projects, even the largest ones, have not been to Infrastructure Australia before their state governments have committed money to them and even started building them, which is just seems insane. Mm. There's a danger for governments that their most desirable large projects get knocked back if they if that does happen. But it just seems it just seems crazy that there's not more actually independent assessment given to to the projects before they start. Um, We've seen that on a a less costly but still egregious scale with the former federal government's um, car parks policy where they, you know, there was almost no oversight of this, of the funding for these uh, commuter car parks before they were announced. So many of them have been cancelled in the recent independent review. But yeah, I mean, that's the basic principle is that take the decision or at least take the, get the advice of, of genuinely independent people who've looked at the costs and benefits before committing to it. Mm. I think the big danger here is that we don't end up with the infrastructure that we need with a massively growing population. So in the last year, we've had 600,000 people come into Australia. And that's a high figure because during COVID, people weren't able to move. Some of that is catching up. But population growth is due to grow strongly, particularly in states like Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria over the next few years, over the next decades, in fact. And and there's a massive need for infrastructure there that will cope with growing populations and make our cities more livable. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a real risk here that we get it wrong and we all suffer because of it. Yeah, I mean we shouldn't be afraid of building big things. We shouldn't we shouldn't shy away from from building big stuff because it's necessary like, you know, cities have been transformed for the better by massive projects like just think about London in the 19th century and when they built the first underground railway and that must have taken you know, I'm sure that bust through a lot of opposition at the time and, and, and dis- dis- disrupted a lot know, of lives. Yeah. yeah, but um, tr- big projects can transform cities for the better. But, yeah, it's just f- picking the right ones and doing them the right way. It seems to me that we only really hear about some of these projects, firstly, when they're announced and then when they turn into an absolute disaster. Is there a problem here with how the media covers this? Are we doing a good job at covering the, the, the infrastructure that's being built around the country? It's difficult for the media to cover a project that extends over decades. Mm. Um, you know, to, it's very hard to see the whole of the elephant, if you like, yeah. <laughs> at any one stage. You're really up close. You see how things go on a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis or, you know, there's an opening. Or, But it is really hard to get an overview of how the project's developing, whether it's going to be value for money. Having said that, I do think some of the coverage, um, particularly of West Connects and of the Sydney metro systems, some media outlets have been given access to these sort of to the underground workings that are going on which are very dramatic and you mm. can see you know there's this an, a huge hugely impressive engineering works going on which are amazing and it is tempting to kind of say look at this shiny amazing thing that's being built out of sight and that does tend to kind of tend towards the slightly gushing approach mm, and then flip 
to the actual opening and then it's like, oh, my God, what, what have we done <laughs> kind of coverage, and which probably, to be fair, is can also be slightly overblown because they did warn that there would be problems when it first opened and they would gradually get better as things develop, which remains to be seen. I think it has been helped by the lack of local and metro reporters in the media landscape. So you saw, for example, the ABC has cut its state-based 7.30 report. Mm. There's very few specialist transport reporters who who cover that beat now. And um, without people who are sticking on those kind of things, you lose kind of corporate knowledge about these things. You lose the ability to look at projects over a longer time frame when many of them delivered over the period of a decade or, or more, you know, it, it mm. suffered in the same way that media landscape in general has suffered from falls in advertising and revenue and so on. Next, the old friend that could have blown up a house in Wales. Hey all, I'm Antoine Issa, Newsletters Editor at Guardian Australia. With so much news happening and a lot of misinformation, we're making sure you get the most accurate reporting from a source you can trust. Guardian Australia's Afternoon Update is a quick roundup of the day's top stories delivered for free straight to your inbox. Sign up at guardian.com forward slash newsletter or simply search for Guardian Australia Newsletters. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now we come to the things we can't get out of our head. Pat, what can't you get out of your head this week? Well, for me, I think um, it was Emmanuel Macron who, uh, you know, strode back onto the scene, interfering in uh, domestic politics once again. He was asked while at COP uh, whether he supported the lifting of Australia's ban on nuclear power, to which he responded, yes, absolutely, which is in one way not particularly surprising for, you know, a, a leader of a country where, you know, nuclear is a dominant form of electricity generation. They have a lot of companies that export uh, nuclear technology around the world. But, you know, foreign leaders are often fairly reluctant to get involved in domestic policy. Mm. And, you know, after his running with Scott Morrison, you, it's interesting to see him back on the scene. Yeah, maybe a score to settle there potentially. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, what can't you get out of your head? So mine is a very sad story from the UK where a couple in Wales had a an ornament in their, in their garden, which turned out to be a shell from the dating back to the, probably the late 19th century their ancestors had recovered from a beach after the british navy i think had been practicing with it <laughs> practicing shelling the coast and had brought back on a horse and cart back in the day 
100, more than 100 years ago and put in their garden, cemented it into their garden. And they'd been using it uh, to kind of, when they finished gardening, they would knock their tools against it to uh, get the dirt off. And then recently, last week, I think a policeman was walking past and said, um, that kind of looks like a shell. Uh, maybe we should get it, get the bomb squad to test it out, uh, which they did and took it away and blew it up. So they um, could have blown themselves up this whole I time mean, with their little knocking ritual. It was, it was a 64-pound naval projectile, uh, which they said was kind of, could have been maybe live, like it probably wasn't. Probably wouldn't have blown up, but anyway, the funny thing was the uh, quotes that the um, that the couple gave. They said it was like losing an old friend. Oh. <laughs> They'd had it in the family for more than a hundred years, and um, it knocked them for six, taking for the fact that they would taken it away and blew it up. Anyway. I thought this story was going to end much sadder, Mike, because I haven't read it. I thought it was going to end with them being no, blown no, to no, 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 no. <laughs> Did they have a that, name that would have been actual sad. Um, I don't <laughs> well, I think don't they had a name. Okay. They called it mm. their old friend. friend. Maybe they did give it a little name, but we don't know what it was. Oh, that's more cute than sad. Pat, thanks so much. Thanks. Mike, thank you. Thanks, Laura. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow. You could also leave a review. The executive producer is Miles Magnoni. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.